Now as we continue with our theme of celebration, I want us to turn to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. It will help to have a Bible. If you have one in front of you, just reach out and get one. If you come regular, I hope you bring your own Bible. It's page 1047 if you have a pew Bible. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, and before we read, let me say some words of introduction to our theme and to the opening verses of Luke before we pick up the reading part way through. Are you one of the 452 people who have signed up for the celebration meal after this service in the assembly rooms? Or maybe you don't like these kind of events, you know, the big banquet thing. Maybe you prefer to eat alone, or just with family and a few friends. But stop a moment and ask yourself a question which Christians often ask these days. In fact, they wear it round their wrists with a little slogan. What would Jesus do? Well, what did Jesus do? If you actually read the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus you may find it surprising how much time he spent eating and drinking with people and attending meals held in his honour. And Luke begins this chapter by describing one such occasion when he was invited to a meal hosted by a prominent religious leader. And as he sat there at the meal table, he noticed something interesting. He noticed around the table that people, as they came in the guests, and we won't be doing this in the assembly rooms, he noticed that people were jostling to get the best seats at the table. The best seats are those particularly next to the host at the head of the table in Israeli culture in those days. And seeing this, Jesus used it to begin to teach them something. First of all, he taught them about where you should sit at a banquet. And he said, don't sit at the place of honour in case your host demotes you and says, sorry, go down to the bottom of the table. No, he says, sit in the lowest place and then your host may well say, friend, come up higher, sit near to me. And he draws out a principle. You'll see it if you have the Bible in front of you in Luke 14. Uh, verse 11, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he moves on from where to sit at a banquet to who to invite when you host a banquet. He says, when you have a banquet, a big celebration meal, don't invite your family and friends, because they'll only repay you by inviting you back again. He said, instead... He says, go out into the streets and uh, invite all the down and outs. Because they can't invite you back again. And the result will be, if you do that, he says, you will be blessed. You'll find God's favour resting on you. His approval, that's what blessing means. And although these guests can't repay you for your hospitality, look what he says, he says, you will be rewarded, this is verse 14, 
You'll be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I would imagine, Luke doesn't say it, I would imagine that these words were followed by that kind of embarrassed silence. Have you ever been at a meal where it's really embarrassing? Someone suddenly says something that everybody finds really embarrassing because nobody agrees with it. And have you noticed what often happens on those occasions? There's always somebody there who jumps in with a statement that they think everybody will agree with to sort of take away the air of embarrassment. So, as Jesus says this, there's this kind of stunned silence as all the guests look uneasily at one another about what Jesus has been saying. And then this kind of pious person jumps in with what seems to be an uncontroversial statement. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I imagine all the guests murmured, Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> and had the song been written when the role is called up yonder, they might have struck up a chorus of, We'll be there, praise the Lord, we'll all be there. But once again, the people, and we, if, if we feel that, are wrong. Because Jesus goes on then to tell one of his stories with a sting in the tail. One of his parables. He tells a parable about a party. And I thought it would be a good thing for us to focus on today as we celebrate and have a party. You'll find it in verses 16 to 24. And I want to read it together as we come to the end of this 40 days of purpose and celebrate what God has done for us. And the main theme, the message of this parable for all of us is this. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Okay, let's read. Verse 15, one of, those, one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. But the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. So the servant said, what you've ordered has been done but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, these are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. And here is more bad news for those of you who don't like banquets. The Bible, through the Old Testament and the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah, and the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, all used a picture of a feast or a big banquet to describe what's going to happen at the end of time in heaven. The biggest banquet ever. So if you're not a banquet person and you want to go to heaven, can I suggest you, know, you start eating with a few more people? <laughs> now this is a background to the parable Jesus told. Let me say three things about it which will help you to remember, hopefully, what it's about. First of all, the first part of this story is about forthcoming festivities. 
a certain man, says Jesus, prepared a great banquet. Now in Scotland we have wonderful wedding banquets and I've been to quite a lot over the years we've lived here. In fact I was at one only week last Saturday at the Balmoral Hotel. It was a wonderful time together. Orchestra, drinks, food, everything. It was a lavish affair. But in the East, these kind of affairs are much more expensive if you've ever lived there as I have. I once attended a wedding in India, I was invited along, and there were 2,000 people there. We had two sittings of 1,000 people each, and these waiters all went around with huge big steel buckets with sweetmeats and curries, and so you had um, uh, banana leaves that they put the food on. In fact, we had metal dishes because we were honoured guests, but, and they came around, we had this incredible banquet that lasted for days. You see, a feast is a happy occasion. There are basically two components to a feast. The first one is food and drink, of course. And food and drink are used in the Bible as a picture of something enjoyable and fulfilling. Maybe by the time we get round to the assembly rooms, your stomach will be rumbling and you'll be saying, I can't wait to get on with my meal. Did I order the melon or the pate at the beginning? Oh dear, well you didn't order anything. They just work it out statistically, so don't start worrying about it now, alright? <laughs> Two thirds melon, one third pate, alright? Now, of course, physical food and drink never really satisfy. Why? Because even if you have a great meal at lunchtime, I'll guarantee some of you by the evening will be getting hungry again. But the Old Testament prophets look forward to a day when God would fully satisfy the appetites of his people, would fulfill all their desires. There's a great example in the prophet Isaiah about an invitation from the Lord. Isaiah 55 The prophet says, the Lord says through the prophet, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and wine without cost. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread, your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Now, the prophet is obviously not speaking literally. He's talking about the day when God is inviting people. Don't waste your time on things that don't satisfy. One day I will satisfy you fully. And what the prophets foretold has now been fulfilled as Jesus speaks in his own coming. Jesus is the Messiah whom the prophets pointed to. And you may remember, if you know the gospel story, that Jesus promises lasting satisfaction to people. So after miraculously feeding a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children with bread and fish, Jesus said to them, look, don't work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then he promised that eternal life. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. To a woman at a well, a woman who tried to find fulfillment in multiple relationships. Some of us have maybe tried that. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks the water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we all thirst for and hunger for has now been fulfilled in the coming of God's Son, Jesus. He can totally, completely satisfy you. So all that the feast needs is a second ingredient. Not just food, but what the Bible calls fellowship. You see, God is the host of this feast. And here's something incredible. If I can put it in reverent terms, 
God does not like to eat alone. <laughs> he could do. But he wants guests at his table. And so as we saw in our first purpose of worship, your plan for God's pleasure, God made human beings to know him, to love him, to enjoy a relationship with him. And sadly, our first parents turned their backs on God and were driven from his presence. But in God, in love, God down the centuries was making preparations for this wonderful feast that people could enjoy with him by sending his son into the world. Our verse of the year reminds us of this. Now this is eternal life, says Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now this is the background to the parable that Jesus tells a certain man was preparing a banquet and invited many guests. The feast is prepared. Food awaits. Fellowship awaits the guests. And the servant is sent to tell them about these forthcoming festivities. Look what it says. The servant is sent. Come for everything is now ready. Now with parables you can't push every detail. But I'm pretty sure that the servant in the parable is a reference to Jesus himself. He's the promised servant of the Lord. And when Jesus began his ministry, when he burst on the scene in Israel around the age of 30, he had a message. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The feast is ready. God's time, foretold by the prophets, had at last arrived. The day is approaching, says Jesus, when Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, when the prophets, when all the people of old, will sit around the kingdom of God celebrating, meeting together at this final great banquet in heaven. Now, no wonder the guests at the table said, won't it be great to get an invitation to a feast like that? But he was wrong. For Jesus' parable has this sting in the tail. As we discover, as we travel with the servant, as he goes out with the invitation. So notice, secondly, not only forthcoming festivities, but notice present preoccupations. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. In the East, you need to understand the background of this, in the East there were always two invitations to any feast or banquet. First of all, you sent your servants out to invite people and say, my master is preparing a feast, will you come? And they said, yes or no. Then the servant went back with his little list or his wax tablet or whatever he had, and he said to his master, I've been round and invited 6,000 people and 3,827 have said they're going to come. And the master then goes to his kitchen and he says to the cook and all the other servants, right, you're to make the feast for 3,827 people. So start killing the animals and whatever else and getting everything ready. That's the first invitation. Then once the feast is ready and the servants come and say, master, the food's about ready, we're going to put it on the table, it'll be on this afternoon. Then the servant is sent with a second invitation to the 3,827 people who said they were going to come to say, come on now. The food's on the table almost. The feast is ready. Time to come. But as the servant visits these people who have already indicated that they will definitely come, he discovers they all have now changed their minds. They begin to make excuses. And as you look at them, they're patently absurd. They are inexcusable excuses. 
And you need to understand again the cultural background of this. If you want a good book, I've recommended it before, but if you want a good book to understand the Eastern background of many of Jesus' parables and teaching, Kenneth Bailey, who's lived in the Middle East, has written two books. They're in a, a joint volume now, Jesus' Poet and Peasant, I think it's called. And he lived and worked in the Middle East, and he explains the background to this. And let me just quote to you from uh, these three examples, the three excuses given in the story. First of all, there's a man who says, I've bought a field, and I've got to go and see it, so I can't come to the feast. That's verse 18. Bailey comments, The statement is a bold-faced lie, and everyone knows it. No one buys a field in the Middle East without knowing every square foot of it like the palm of his hand. Then he goes on, the springs, wells, stone walls, trees, paths, anticipated rainfall are all well known before a discussion of the purchase has even begun. Indeed, these items must be known, for in the past they were carefully included in the contract. And Bailey compares it to someone in the West who says, I've just bought a new house over the phone and I must go and have a look at it in the neighbourhood. You wouldn't do it. The second excuse is equally false and insulting. Here's the guy who says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to try them out. Bailey comments, the excuse is not reasonable, because the testing of oxen always takes place before they are bought, not afterwards. This, friends, this is a Jewish culture. His hearers would know he's being ridiculous. No self-respecting Jew buys five oxen without trying them out first. And again, Bailey gives a good illustration. Here's a man who phones up his wife and says, I can't make it for dinner. I've just signed a cheque for five used cars, which I bought over the phone. I'm on my way down to the used car lot to find out their age and model and see if they'll start. And he comments on hearing this, even the most devoted wife will worry about her husband's sanity. And the third excuse is just as inexcusable. Here's a man who says, sorry, I just got married, so I can't come. When did he get married? Not at the same time, because you would never in the East have two big celebrations on the same day, same time. And if it was in the recent past, he can come to the feast and go back to his wife afterwards. He's only going to be there a few hours. No, the excuse is a deliberate insult to an Eastern host. Bailey again comments that he is saying in effect, Yesterday I said I would come, but this afternoon I'm busy with a woman who is more important to me than your banquet. So what's the point of the parable? Well, Jesus is putting his hosts on the spot again. It's a prominent Jewish religious leader and his pals who've invited Jesus along. You know, the man who said, Blessed is he who eats at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, Here I am, I'm the servant. I'm issuing invitations. The feast is ready. But instead of gladly accepting them, they're rejecting the invitation of God and they're rejecting God's servant, Jesus. Bailey again comments helpfully. The parable says that as they reject Jesus with these unacceptable excuses, they're rejecting the great banquet of salvation promised by God in Isaiah that is in some sense even now set before them through the presence of Jesus in their midst. But not only do they reject the host, they also prefer other things. These people don't really want to come to the great banquet because they've got other priorities. They're preoccupied with other things which seem to be more important than God's kingdom and God's servant. They're more interested in possessions like the field. They're more interested in work, the oxen. They're more interested in relationships, the wife. And as such, they break their previous promise to their host and slight his gracious 
invitation. Now this is a celebration Sunday. And the good news is, God has made it possible for every one of us to be his guests. He's made it possible for you to enjoy in all eternity his presence. Along with all those who love him. It would be great to have a meal with 452 people, Christians. But listen, there will be thousands and millions and millions of people gathered around the throne of God in glory. And God had these plans which he laid in eternity. Which he promised through history. And are now fulfilled when he sent his own son into the world. Now you say to yourself, as the man did, can you imagine anybody saying, no thanks, I'm not interested, I don't want to come. Most people, if asked, would you like to be sure that you'll be in heaven? Well, surely answer, yes. But the sad reality is that many people, including some of us, are too preoccupied with the present things of this life to accept the invitation which comes for the future life. We're more interested in earth than we are in heaven. Now, the things that preoccupy us, possessions, work, relationships, they're not morally wrong, like some things are. Rather, they are legitimate things in their own place. But when they take first place in our lives, instead of God and his kingdom, then they bar us from accepting God's invitation. So Jesus urged people in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, make sure you have the right priority. Talking about food and drink and clothing, he says, don't worry about those things. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well, Matthew 6, 33. But sadly, most people miss out on future celebrations because of present preoccupations. And here's the even sadder bit. The people you would most expect to be most responsive to God's invitation, religious people, Bible people, church people, people who claim to be heavenly minded, are the people who miss out. Now I'm sure the irony and point of this is not missed by Jesus' host and his friends. They are the religious leaders. They're the ones who've been longing, praying as every good Jew does, that this may be the day I wake to greet the Messiah. They've been looking forward to it for centuries, waiting for the final invitation, as it were, to drop through their letterbox, saying, it's here! And they miss out because they're preoccupied with other things. And sadly that is still the case today. You see, you may have grown up in a church family. You may have come to church all your life. One like this. Or even this church. You may know the facts of the Bible. You may know all about Jesus and why he came into the world. Why he died on the cross and that he rose again. But you are more interested in reality, in this present life and all that it offers, than in God's future kingdom. And so, like the Pharisees, you can be very religious, but miss out altogether on heaven. For the story ends with a third feature. Contrasting conclusions. Will you notice the response of the master when he hears this news? The servant comes back and he says, Master... All of the people you invited have all turned down your invitation. What do you think God's response is when we turn down his invitation? Do you think he's sad? Yes, he is. Do you think he's angry? Yes, I think he is. 
that we've slighted his love and spurned his invitation. But the parable tells us that does not thwart his plan to fill his banquet. He doesn't cancel it and say, nobody's coming, so let's just forget it. No, instead he orders his servants to go to people who would not normally be included in the invitation. Do you see that? Outsiders are included. He says, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the uh, the blind and the lame. Now, those are the categories of people that the religious people thought were excluded from God's kingdom. Either because of their social status or their physical incapacities. And again, the meaning would be clear to the people Jesus was eating with. I'd be pretty surprised if this guy ever invited him back again for another meal. The Pharisees, the religious people, they refuse to accept Jesus in his message. And so what does Jesus do? He goes to the down and outs, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards, and he invites them to come to the banquet. And here's the great contrast. They accept the invitation. They come in. Jesus himself said to them on one occasion, here's the great tragedy. Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God and you're missing out and standing outside, criticising. So the servant reports back to his master. And he says, Master, I've invited them all in, but there's still more room. So the master extends the invitation even further. He says, go out into the roads, the country lanes. Make them come in so that my house will be full. Again, the meaning is clear. The invitation to God's feast is not just to the outcasts of Jewish society. It's even to people outside the pale in the hedgerows. It's an invitation to non-Jews. To Gentiles. Now you should be very thankful for that because most of us are Gentiles, not Jews by birth. And if this were not the case, there would be no Charlotte Chapel, there would be no churches in Scotland, and you would be put outside the kingdom of God forever and excluded from heaven. And when Jesus said this, this was shocking to the people there. Bad enough saying outcasts of Jewish society are going to make it into heaven. Might be able to get my head around that, but, but Gentiles... Even the early Christians found it hard to come to terms that the gospel was meant for all peoples. But it's an invitation to all, which is why we're here today. It's very hard to... I think if if you've ever really grasped this, your reaction will be, can it be true? Which is why the sermon has to make them come in. It's a very abused phrase, this been used by the church in terrible ways to compel people to come to faith. It doesn't mean that. The background of it is, when the servant goes to these people, this guy lying in the hedgerow and says, my master's got a big banquet, please come. The guy's going to say, you're pulling my leg, Jimmy. Can't be me. Have Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt to yourself, this is just too good to be true, this Christian message? That I am invited into God's feast. That God has made a way for me to get into heaven. And that's why preachers have to compel you and say, it's true, please, come in, it really is for you. This is a faithful saying, says Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Maybe you're such a person this morning. Maybe you're sitting there and thinking, I'm not going to that meal and I don't think I'll be going to the big meal in the end of time either because you don't know the kind of things I've done. 
if you put them on the screen here, I'd have to run out in, in shame. You don't know the kind of way I've wasted and ruined my life. It, you can't, it can't be for me, really. It's, it's for good people like you chapel people, you know? No, it's for you. Christ Jesus died for sinners. It's, it's wonderful news. Amazing. Maybe you're from another country and you think... This is just for foreigners, you know, it's a white man's religion. No, it's not. It's for all peoples, all nations. You see, Jesus has paid the entry price for you to get into heaven. A price you could never pay, as the old hymn puts it. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven. Saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Friend, this is just amazingly good news. Which is why we call it gospel, because that's what the word gospel means. But will you notice tragically that the parable ends on a terrible note? For not only are outsiders included, but insiders are excluded. Do you see at the end of it? The master says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. It's not clear whether these verses This verse are those of the master in the story or Jesus himself. The you is plural. It may well be that Jesus is turning to them. I tell you, Pharisees, religious people, if you miss out on this, you miss out for good. And while it's hard to convince outsiders to accept the invitation because they think they're not good enough to get into heaven, you've got an opposite problem. Religious people, they think they are good enough. You ask people and go to church say, do you think you'll get to heaven? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Why? Well, God must work on a cu- mark on a curve and I'm sure I'm in the top 50%. No, friends, he works on 100% and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus says, if you don't accept the invitation that comes through him, you will miss out entirely. Notice the little phrase, a taste of my banquet. Again, it probably refers to a tradition in the East. It's, it's a bit like, you know, weddings where you, the bride and groom cut the Christmas, uh, the Christmas cake, the wedding cake, <laughs> and you send bits of cake to people who didn't get to the wedding in a little box, so they get a taste of what it was like. Well, they used to do that in the East. It's a bit like, you know, when you're a kid, or when you're a parent, let's say, and you say to your kids, come on, dinner's ready, it's on the table, and they say, look, I'm really busy doing something. Put mine on a plate and I'll put it in the microwave and have it later. Jesus says, there is no microwave and there's no later. There is no wedding cake coming through the post. There is no chance later that you're going to make it. If you turn down this invitation, you're going to miss out. It's what the mother says when the meal's on the table. You come when you call. You don't come when you choose. See, you're sitting there this morning and some of you are are not yet Christians. You've not received the invitation. You're thinking to yourself, "Ah, yeah, that's that's for me, but really I've got some other things I want to do first. And there's this relationship that really is important to me. And it's my career to think about. And Well, I think I'll get a taste when I'm about 85 and about to leave this life. And the master says, no, you come. When you're called, not when you choose. 
for the opportunity will have gone. God may never speak to you in this way again. You'll miss out altogether. Come when you've called. Almost finished, but let me finish on a positive note. By reminding you that the servant says, there is still room. You see, we live in a day where there is still room. Richard tells me he's booked an extra ten or a dozen places at the banquet in the assembly rooms for anybody who didn't book who would really like to come. So there'll be a scrum after the service if you want to get the first twelve seats. And after that, we can't really take much more than that because the, the feast will be full. The assembly rooms will be, the, the food won't go any further. Now, I don't know how many spaces are left in heaven, but I do know this. There is still room, which is why I'm preaching here. If I thought heaven was full and the elect, whoever they are, are already there, I would stop preaching. I'd say, well, it's done. Nothing. Sorry, mate, you've had it. No, there is still room. So let me leave you with a final invitation. The Bible's full of invitations. The last chapter of the last book, of the last book of the Bible, there's an invitation. That's what it says. Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, who's the Bride? The Church of Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty... Let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you tried also for the ways of filling in life? Also for the things, and you're still thirsty. God says to you, and I say to you, his spirit says to you, his church says to you, come. While you may. Today's a day of celebration, marking what God has done for us as a church. This evening we celebrate with those who are being baptised. I hope you're coming to the celebration banquet after the service. But I understand that not everyone can come and not everybody wants to come. That's fine. It will be disappointing but not disastrous if you don't make it to the assembly rooms. But not to be present in the feast of the kingdom of God will be the greatest tragedy ever. So I simply say to you today, Don't miss out. Let's pray together.